How would you fill in the blank? I think I would be truly happy if. I think I would be truly happy if. No doubt many of us have something that comes to mind rather spontaneously. Maybe right now you have a relationship that's especially painful. And you think, Lord, if you would just resolve that painful relationship, I think, I think I could be happy. Or maybe you or maybe someone close to you is undergoing a significant medical issue right now, a significant health issue. And you think, Lord, if you would just resolve that, if you would just heal my body or heal my family member's body, I, I think I would be truly happy. Or maybe you're faced with some life circumstance, some difficulty, a, a job you really don't like, a class in school that you're struggling with, or maybe a housing situation that's less than desirable, or a financial pinch that you wish would just be corrected. And you think, you know, if that difficulty I'm facing were just resolved, I, I, think, I think I would be happy. You know, as I think about my own question, I, I honestly believe that all of us hunger for happiness. I think it's the way God made us as image bearers. I thought about that Hebrew word, maybe you've heard it before, shalom. It's usually translated peace. But somehow it's richer and deeper than that. And I think of shalom as Everything's right. Everything is right. It's shalom. And I think all of us image bearers, those of us made in the image of God, that would be all of us, somehow deep in our souls we all know that everything should be shalom. Everything should be right. And we all have this hunger in our souls for happiness. But where... Where can we find true satisfaction for that hunger in our souls? Let me elevate the question somewhat. Where can I find true joy? Ozzie and Cindy, how did you say it this morning that true joy is gladness of the soul? I want to remember that. Gladness of the soul. Where, where do we find true satisfaction? Not just some temporary satisfaction, but true, lasting, deep satisfaction of our soul. Where do we find true joy? The answer to that question might surprise a lot of people. Join me, please, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. As you've already been informed, today is our third Sunday of Advent, and we're focusing on the word joy. We're going to look at this very familiar passage today, but my prayer is that this very familiar passage will be looked at with fresh eyes, and that we might see true joy from a rather unexpected place. I would guess that most of us in this room 
have heard Luke chapter 2 countless times. The youngest among us would have fewer. Those of us that are older, we've lost count. <laughs> How many times we've heard the story of Luke 2? But let's, let's with fresh eyes and an open heart, look at this familiar passage. What's the backdrop? What is the backdrop to chapter 2 of Luke? There's some shepherds in this story, aren't there? There's some shepherds who are quite literally just minding their own business. They're just minding their own business. They were doing what they did nearly every night, taking turns, guarding their sheep from predators and thieves. Now, we're not that familiar with shepherds here in our culture in the Midwest. Shepherds were not necessarily considered the dregs of the Jewish society, but neither were they at the top of the social classes. They weren't rich like some of the business people and members of the royal family in the nearby Jerusalem. They weren't highly respected like the well-educated religious leaders that they encountered regularly when they took their sheep to Jerusalem to be sold for people that needed them for sacrifice. As I think about shepherds in first century Judaism, the word that came to my mind, the phrase that came to my mind was they were just average Joes. They, they, they were just average Joes. I think we've romanticized the story of the birth of Jesus so much that we miss its bluntness. I appreciate what J.A. Packer wrote years ago when he talked about the incarnation of Jesus and he said, we've prettified it. We've sanitized it. And when you think of the angel coming to the shepherds, we've romanticized that story so often that we forget how incongruous that would have sounded to the people who first read Luke's gospel. And, and if you'll allow me to use my imagination, <laughs> thank you, I've wondered, what, what if? What if God had sent his angel in our day, in our culture? Where would he have sent that angel? Now, please understand, this is my imagination. This is not the word of God, okay? We're on safe ground here. But I've wondered if the angel might have showed up at a truck stop, and I'm the son of a trucker. I wonder if the angel would have shown up at a truck stop, and showed up in the truck stop with truckers gathered around some almost clean tables, <laughs> drinking their late night coffee before they hit the road again. And you might be thinking right now, Pastor Larry, that sounds like a ridiculous story. Well, guess what? The fact that the angel showed up to some shepherds in the first century would have sounded ridiculous to the people of that day. When I think of Isaiah's prophecy 700 years before when he said that the gospel would be preached to the poor. That rather ordinary night for the shepherds was unexpectedly interrupted. Have you found Luke chapter 2? Follow along as I begin reading at verse 8. And I'm going to read down through verse 20. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20, the word of God says this. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. 
And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, You bet they did. Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. An angel showed up. And what were the first words out of the angel's mouth? Fear not. Or we might even say, stop being afraid, guys. (laughs) You know, I said that we've romanticized the Christmas story. And, you know, if you think about the pictures you've seen, the the drawings, the paintings of the nativity of Christ, or maybe a manger scene, a creche in your home, um, I usually don't find the angels that terrifying, quite frankly. (laughs) You know how people picture angels in our day, these these little cute baby cherubim, you know, with their little tiny bows, or, or maybe they're effeminate angels playing harps. Anything but terrifying. But in Psalm 103, verse 20, the Word of God calls God's angels God's mighty ones. God's mighty ones. You you track this. Don't take my word for it. You track it in the Bible. When people encountered angels in the Bible, what's the first thing that happened to them? They were scared. They were afraid. Often they would fall down. Sometimes they tried to worship the angels. And the angels would say, hey, no, no, no. We're created beings too. Don't worship us. But there was something terrifying about these angels. Not that they were cruel, but that they were mighty, overwhelming. And this angel showed up to the shepherds that night. And they were afraid. The angel had to calm them down. They were filled with great fear. I don't know what the shepherds were thinking, but I wonder if that angel showed up by their campfire that night, if if their their minds started quickly reeling back like, okay, what did I do? What did I do? Why am I in trouble? God's coming to judge me. He sent his angel to tell me I'm in trouble. And yet the angel brought a message that was very unexpected. The angel said, I bring you good news, good news. We often translate this same word, the gospel. 
The angel says, I'm going to gospelize you, shepherds. I'm going to gospelize you. I'm going to tell you the good news. God's message was astonishingly good. As I thought about that, I thought, isn't it true, those of us that are believers, that the gospel, the gospel takes away our dread of meeting a holy God? When you think of meeting a holy God, it is terrifying to meet a holy God unless we are covered over with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the one who stood in our place. The gospel has a way of taking away our dread of God. But the angel said, I bring you good news of what? Of great joy. Why would this good news bring great joy? Now, I realize not all of you are using the English Standard Version, the ESV, but if you're reading the ESV right now, what is the very first word in verse 11? Someone tell me out loud, please. For, because, for, because. I'm sorry, if you're using a translation that doesn't have the word for, I was so curious. I went and checked out the original, the Greek. It's there. I don't know why so many of the English translations left it out. So, as far as I'm concerned, if you want to Jot it in the margin of your Bible. You're free to do so. It's not adding to the word of God. It's actually there. <laughs> he says, this news is, will bring great joy for because, why because? Because to you is born this day in the city of David. And then he gives this baby that had been born three titles, doesn't he? Three titles. The only place in the whole Bible where you find these three titles together. Who is the focal point of this history-changing, eternally focused message of good news? Who is the focal point? He's the Savior. That is the emphasis here. A Savior. Whether you're here today and you're 8 years old, or you're here today and you're 88 years old, can I ask you all the same question? What is the biggest problem you have ever faced in your life? I don't care what age you are. I don't care what background you all have. What is the biggest problem you have ever faced in your entire life? <laughs> Thank you, brother. Yeah, you know what? I, I know the answer, and some of you do too. We all have the same answer, or we should have the same answer. No matter what our age, no matter what our background, the, the biggest problem you and I have ever faced is this. How can I, a sinner, ever be right with the holy God who made me and to whom I will give an account. Every other problem you have ever faced, will ever face in life, pales in insignificance to that problem. The biggest problem you and I have ever faced is how can I, a sinner, ever be right before the holy God who made me and to whom I will give an account? And that night, out on the Bethlehem hillside, the angel said, I've got good news. I've got good news that will bring you great joy. For tonight, in the city of David, there's been a baby born, and he is the Savior. 
I was recently in our devotions, we just recently read 1 Timothy. And I was reading Paul's testimony in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and he said this in verse 18, he's 15 of 1 Timothy 1, he said, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then Paul adds his own testimony, of whom I am chief. I've got good news that brings great joy. A Savior has come. A writer from a couple of generations ago that I still enjoy reading, William Hendrickson, said this. What greater joy could there be than the realization and wholehearted acceptance of the fact that God himself, through the sacrifice of his one and only son, had brought about the solution to the world's greatest problem, that of sin. Do you see why the message of the angel should bring great joy? Because that baby that he told them about was the Savior. You know, if I could make a pastoral comment here on, the, on an aside, I've been wondering, I've been wondering why, why are so many people, why at I am times so unimpressed with the coming of Jesus Christ into the world to save sinners? Why does that not grip my mind? Why does it not grip my soul as it should? And as I think about that, as I look at the world around me, as I look at the world we're living in, it strikes me that we have twin problems. The one is that we have a tendency to overestimate our goodness. We have a tendency to overestimate our goodness. And, and we'll even say things like this, well, I know I'm not perfect, but I know a lot of people that are worse than I am. And you know, even if you've never said those words, don't we all think it at times? I'm not as bad as some people. And we overestimate our worthiness, our goodness. And the twin of that, the corollary to that is that we underestimate God's holiness. And people say things in our culture every day like, well, my God wouldn't do that. Who's your God? My God's a God of love. He wouldn't hurt anybody. He wouldn't send anyone to hell. After all, he grades on a curve, doesn't he? And we underestimate God's holiness. And so if we approach this whole subject of the angel's message of, I bring you good news, the gospel of, of great joy for to you, this day is born in the city of David, a Savior. Savior, we should be saying, oh, that's who we need. That's, that's who we need. When God, in his grace, gives us eyes to see his absolute holiness. And in light of his absolute holiness, we see our utter sinfulness. Then the cry of our heart is, I need a Savior. I need someone to rescue me. From the condemnation that I rightfully deserve from the holy God who made me. And there's no way you and I can rectify that problem. But the Bible says that God has solved it. 
by sending his one and only son into the world to save sinners like you and me. The angel said, I've got good news. I've got news that should thrill your soul. The Savior has been born. And then he gives them these two titles. He says, secondly, that he's Christ. He's Christ. Christ means anointed one, the one who is king, the Messiah, the Mashiach. And, and friends, do this with me sometime. It'll take you a year or two, but read through the Old Testament. Read through the Old Testament and notice this sad litany, the sad story that leader after leader after leader was flawed and failed in sin. Pick the best of them. Pick Moses. He failed. He sinned. Pick King David, the best of the kings. King David sinned. And, and we read this, this story of generation after generation, century after century through the Old Testament, leader after leader, the judges, the kings, they were all flawed and sinful. And the faithful Old Testament saints hungered, Oh God, when are you going to send a perfect king? When are you going to send a king who is perfectly righteous, perfectly just? God, when, when will we have a king who's perfect, flawless, sinless? And that hunger that the Old Testament saints faced century after century was given hope during the dark days of the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah wrote this by God's leading in Isaiah chapter 9. You, you hear it Christmas by Christmas. Hear it afresh, my friends. Hear it with fresh ears this year. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder and his name, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. My friends, for hundreds of years, the faithful prayed for that day, hungered for that day. And that night on the Bethlehem hillside, the angel said, I've got, I've got good news, guys. I've got news that will bring you great joy. Not just you, but for all the people. Great news that tonight... In that village over there, there's been a baby born. And that baby is the Savior. That baby's the king you've hungered for. He's the Christ, the Messiah. And the angel who was delivering the message wasn't even done yet, was he? He says, he is Christ. You know this one, don't you? He's Christ, the Lord. Do you know what that is? Do you know when he referred to that baby as the Lord? Do you know what he's saying? He's saying that baby is, is God. He's God come in the flesh. He's, he's the Lord. 
Friends, let me just read to you from John's Gospel, the beginning of John's Gospel. And, and I want us afresh to wonder at the marvel of the coming of Jesus Christ. John begins his Gospel by saying this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. You go back to the beginning, he was already there. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And now I'm going to drop down to verse 14. Listen to the jolt. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And when that angel said that night to the shepherds, I've got good news that will bring you great joy. Not just you, but all the people. There's been a baby born over there in Bethlehem. And I want to tell you, he's going to bring great joy, and here's why. He's the Savior. He's the King He's God come in the flesh. And as we've romanticized this story, let's back away from our casual attitude about the coming of Christ and to realize who that was lying in the manger. The infinite one had taken on visibility. The infinite one had taken on finiteness. The eternal one now lived in time. The transcendent one was now near. The king of kings was now a Jewish baby boy. The divine had become flesh. God had become man. The word became flesh. An amazing message. Oh, that's good news. That brings great joy. Where would they find this Savior? Not in Jerusalem. Now, I realize you might not be familiar with the geography of Palestine, but Jerusalem and Bethlehem are only about six miles apart. Not, not far at all. But the angel didn't point toward Jerusalem and say the king was born there in the capital. He pointed to the much lesser village of Bethlehem, the hometown of King David. You see, a thousand years before, a thousand years before, God had promised that one day David would have a descendant, the descendant who would be the perfect king, the king of righteousness. And now this very night that the angel showed up, that descendant of David was born in Bethlehem. And these shepherds were supposed to go look for this baby boy. Now, how would they know they found the right baby? Kids, have you ever thought about that? How did the shepherds know they had found the right baby? Well, God sent the angel to give them a message that there will be an indicator, there will be a sign. What was the sign? It wasn't just that the baby was swaddled. All the babies in Jerusalem were swaddled. That's what they did back then. They swaddled their babies. They bound them up with cloth to keep their arms and legs straight. It was their culture. But it wasn't that the baby was swaddled. What was the sign? The swaddled baby would be where? Kids, the baby would be where? In a manger. What's a manger? 
It's a feeding trough. Now, if we didn't know this story, and we were given an announcement that a king had been born, we would probably go to the palace, wouldn't we? We'd probably go to a palace and find some gilded crib with a princely baby lying in it. Or you might think, well, probably should be born into some pious home. Maybe we should go to the home of one of the priests, maybe even the high priest, and find one of these pristine cribs, cradles. But the angel didn't say that, did he? The angel said, go over there to the village, not the capital Jerusalem, go over to the village of Bethlehem and look for a baby, a swaddled baby lying in a manger. Why a manger? Now, I want, I want to challenge you with something. This wasn't happenstance. This wasn't some afterthought. I mean, it wasn't that Joseph is helping deliver baby Jesus and said, now where are we going to put this little guy? Oh, here's a manger. It wasn't happenstance. Do you realize every, everything about the birth of Jesus and Messiah was planned ahead of time? Everything was, everything was pre-planned. Do you know how I know that? The Bible tells me so. <laughs> the means that Jesus would come was well announced ahead of time. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, the God with us one. The means that Jesus would come to this earth was pre-planned. The timing was pre-planned. When Paul wrote his letter to the Galatian churches, he said, And when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. When the fullness of time, Jesus showed up right when that was planned from eternity past. And did you know even the place was pre-planned? That little book of Micah in the Old Testament, chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old and from ancient days land, including the manger, the the angel knew because the angel had been told by the great planner, God himself, tell them to go look in a manger. Why? Why a feeding trough? Well, one, I think, fairly obvious answer is to show Jesus' humble humanity. Jesus was truly God and truly man. And that he chose to take on flesh. Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 7. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, to be clung to. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Or a profound statement from the author of Hebrews that we learned about in our Hebrews series not too many weeks ago, months ago. The author of Hebrews said that Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect 
so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make a propitiation for the sins of his people. Jesus took on flesh. And it was human flesh. The baby lying in a manger does tell us about the chosen, humble humanity of Jesus. But I think there's more to it than that. And maybe a more subtle lesson is this. Now, what is a manger? What happens in a manger? It's, it's a feeding trough. Maybe we should call it that, a feeding trough. Now, I'm guessing that the feeding trough was padded with maybe some scratchy straw. And excuse me, but it probably had remnants of animal slobber on the sides and the bottom when the King of Kings and Lord of Lords was laid there that night. A feeding trough. The word for manger means feeding, a place for eating. By the way, it probably was stone and not wood. We don't know for sure, but it kind of blows our image, doesn't it? <laughs> Jesus said something during his ministry that shook up a lot of people. You can read about it in the Gospel of John chapter 6. When Jesus began to talk about himself in front of this Jewish crowd as the bread sent from heaven. And the people pushed back. And they said, oh, well, our, our ancestor Moses, he, he gave us bread. He gave us manna. And I know I'm summarizing a long chapter here, but it's as if Jesus told those people, do you realize that manna just pointed to me? He said, I'm the bread from heaven. I'm the bread sent from God. And he said in verse 35 of John 6, he said, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Shall not hunger. Now when I ask you, where do we get satisfaction to this hunger in our souls? We don't have to speculate. We, we don't have to wonder. We need to listen. We need to listen to, to King Jesus, who said, I'm the bread from heaven. I'm the one who satisfies the hunger in your souls. And when baby Jesus was laid in that feeding trough, I think there's at least a picturesque lesson there, that he is God's provision for the hunger of our souls. So what's the impact? What kind of impact should finding the baby in the manger have? We already said it's, it's great joy. But I want to show you something else here in this passage. That there, there's a phrase in verse 20 that I think of as one of those flyover phrases. <laughs> we might read it and miss, miss the wonder of it all. Look at verse 20 of Luke chapter 2. It says, And the shepherds... Returned. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. The shepherds returned. Returned where? What do you think? Returned where? <laughs> to their flocks. Returned to what? <laughs> their jobs. Returned to whom? Their co workers, their family. 
they return to their normal lives. We have this tendency to think, I would be happy if my life just changed. That I no longer had these financial problems, I no longer had these health problems, I no longer had these relational problems. If the circumstances of my life would just change, I think I would be happy. And when I was meditating on this passage and parked for a little while on verse 20, it struck me that so far as we know, the lives of these ordinary Joes, these shepherds, hadn't changed. They went back to their old jobs. They went back to their old co-workers, their, their families, their, their lives. Their lives hadn't changed, but they had. They had because they had met the Savior, Christ the Lord. And because even though they were going back to their normal lives and the same problems they had had the night before, they were going back as different people because they encountered the Savior, Christ the Lord. And I think about you and me. And let me ask the same question I began with. I would be truly happy if we all do it. We all have a tendency to look around and try to find an answer to that question. Now, friends, we should be grateful when the Lord heals someone. We should be grateful when that strained relationship is, is resolved. We should be thankful when God blesses us with more finances. Those aren't things to regret. Those are things to thank God for. But you realize that the restored health is not final. It's tenuous. It's temporary. I was talking to some of our grandchildren recently about the resurrection of Jesus' friend Lazarus and realizing that, excuse me, but he ended up dying again someday. We don't know when, but Lazarus ended up dying again. And even if God miraculously heals someone, you realize if that person lives long enough, they're probably going to get sick again. And relationships, yeah, they, they improve and sometimes they go the other direction. And I don't need to tell you that our finances go up and down, don't they? And these days, it's probably more down than up. <laughs> these things we look for to bring us happiness are tenuous and temporary. They do not bring lasting, deep joy. We can be thankful for them, but that's not where we look. Instead, like the shepherds, we go to the manger. And when we go to the manger, who do we find? We find the Savior, Christ the Lord. Some of you have been chasing happiness fantasies for way too long. Let me encourage you today to abandon that fruitless quest. You're not, you're not going to find happiness in the temporary things of this world. You're not. So why not today 
abandon that quest and instead go to the manger and look at that one that God sent to be the Savior, Christ the Lord, and find your hope, your joy in him. And then as God does that miracle of grace in your life, do what the shepherds did. Go tell other people. Go tell other people where you found this joy, that they might join us. I think of what Peter wrote in his first letter. He said, though you have not seen him, the resurrected Jesus, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. And if you're here today as a believer, would you say amen to Peter's comment? Inexpressible joy. If you care to talk to me privately or one of the other pastors or a friend here in the church about your own need of Christ, we're more than glad to sit down with you after this service and tell you how you can find joy in Christ. We won't rush away. Look us up. Let me pray for us as the worship team comes to lead us in the closing.